Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.24, The Dominion of New England. Last time, we spent the week looking at the final collapse of the Massachusetts Bay Company Charter. With the company dead, as well as Charles II, this week we enter into the reign of James II. James II is going to bring with him all the new struggles at home. On this podcast, we have literally, since the very second episode, been talking about the religious situation in England and how so often that is going to boil over into open hostility. Suffice it to say that the English are less than thrilled to suddenly have a Catholic king. Those tensions and problems are going to lead to a monumental set of events back in England, which are going to in turn spill into the colonies. Over the next few episodes, we are going to examine how events in England, in conjunction with the new reality of the Dominion of New England, is going to reach a boiling point. Well, Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire would be the first colonies to join, it took little time for Edward Randolph to launch attacks against Connecticut and Rhode Island as well. By the summer of 1685, the process was already underway to do away with the charters and bring those colonies also under the control of the Dominion. The plan for the crown and the entire design behind the Dominion in the first place was to consolidate the power in New England. One of the major issues that had really arisen in the past couple decades was the fact that there were so many separate entities inside of New England that it became difficult to form consistent rules between all of the colonies. This situation is exacerbated by the fact that the colonies, like Massachusetts, were completely disinterested in even attempting to play the game. By consolidating power, the king would be able to more easily enforce his royal prerogative upon the colonies. The first governor of this new supercolony was Joseph Dudley, and unsurprisingly, he was met with animosity from the members of the now-out-of-power faction. Joseph Dudley had been a longtime member of the moderate group. A converted Anglican, Dudley made sense for the temporary post. He was ultimately going to fall in line with royal prerogative, and initially at least, he was somebody that the crown felt they could trust. For the members of the now-ousted faction, Dudley was seen as nothing short of a traitor. As we have discussed before, the members of the faction viewed all of this as being a punishment from God. Going back to King Philip's war and now the dissolution of their charter, it must have meant that something they had done had angered God to the extent that such a punishment was warranted. Dudley was viewed as a punishment for the sins of the colonists. The first order for Dudley was to assemble a council around himself. This council, unsurprisingly, was made up of the moderate leaders in the colony, as well as Edward Randolph. In addition to Randolph, we find our representatives to London, Peter Bulkley and William Strauden, as well as Walt and Fitz John Winthrop, the grandchildren of John Winthrop. Dudley was met with widespread, though generally passive, resistance. There were challenges to his government from the very beginning, on the grounds that it was arbitrary by its very nature. In regard to these challenges, the general outcome was just a lot of fists shaking on both sides, with nobody really wanting to take a step much more decisive than that. The only really serious challenge that threatened to move beyond mere grumbling came from a former lieutenant in the local militia named John Gould. Gould was unquestionably loyal to the old guard and was less than thrilled about what he was seeing from Dudley and the new government. Now, to be clear, there were a lot of people who actively opposed Dudley, 
and indeed hated the guy's guts and thought of him as a traitor. But as we just mentioned, all that really led to, in most cases, was some angry fish shaking and complaining. In those cases, Dudley would normally chastise the offender with no other punishment. However, Gould was more of a problem. Gould was not just complaining to Dudley and a small circle of former Massachusetts elites. Gould was complaining to the militia members whom he once commanded. Further, rather than simply airing his grievances with the Dudley regime, Gould was busy actively rallying these men over to his cause. Gould would eventually declare that he had no plans to recognize the new government and that he would be willing to offer his militia company in defense of the old guard. This is not a minor thing for Dudley to have to deal with. He was now facing an angry man who vehemently opposed him and one who was willing to command his militia to overthrow him. For Dudley, this was a serious test, one where a wrong move could plunge the entire colony into rebellion. Knowing that he needed to tread carefully, Dudley had Gould arrested. Tried for spreading libelous and treasonous behavior, Gould was convicted and let off with a fine of 50 pounds. This was an exceptionally light sentence, considering that Gould was actively trying to incite and personally command a rebellion against Dudley. So, why the light touch? The last thing that Dudley would have wanted was to end up making a martyr out of John Gould. Any overreach of punishment was going to be declared arbitrary and severe, which would have only fanned the flames that Gould himself was trying to propagate. By acting with such a light touch, Dudley was able to both make clear that such activity was not going to be tolerated moving forward, while at the same time not allowing events to get away from himself with some brutal punishment. It was a well-played moment in the short-lived reign of Joseph Dudley. Resistance beyond that point was restricted to the same old angry grumbling and foot-dragging that we had seen before. Dudley, however, was ultimately nothing more than a placeholder. Taking power in May of 1686, Joseph Dudley would last just over seven months before the permanent governor of the new colony would arrive. On December 20th, 1686, Edmund Andros arrived in Massachusetts and took control over the Dominion of New England. This is not the first time that we have seen Edmund Andros in our story. In fact, he has spent much of this season hanging out right on the periphery of events. He was, of course, the royal governor of New York, until he found himself accused of financial mismanagement. The accusations against him were in no small part related to his dealings with the then Duke of York, James. The accusations against Andros were brought in the first place while James was busy fighting off challenges with those who wished to seem excluded from the throne. With James having survived the exclusion crisis, the Stuarts had a new lease on life, and Andros survived his politically motivated trial. Andros likewise has appeared in our story before in regards to Massachusetts. If you'll recall, it was Andros who was the one who provided the much unwanted and very much unrequested help during King Philip's War. His troops were met with armed resistance from those that they were on their way to assist in Connecticut. Getting the hint that maybe the Connecticut colonists did not want his help, he and his men showed themselves out. Andros would, though from a more behind-the-scenes role, remain an important part of King Philip's War. It was Edmund Andrus who had armed the Mohawks and then had encouraged them to deliver such a devastating attack on the Wampanoag. This is to say nothing of the fact that when a peace was finally agreed to in King Philip's War, 
it was Edmund Andros who brokered it. With his trial now behind him, Andros found himself needing a new job. Thomas Donegan had taken over New York, which left Andros quite open. While always a popular figure with the Stuarts in general, he had a long working relationship with James, Duke of York particularly. When the Duke of York became King James II, Andros' own station in life also grew. James had seen firsthand how resistant Massachusetts was towards royal rule and knew that he needed a strong hand to come in and enforce the crown's control. Andros was clearly the guy for the job. He knew the people in New England from his time in New York. He had both civil and military leadership experience as well. Mostly, however, he was somebody whom James II could look at and implicitly trust. Andros was, to his very core, a company man. James II knew that if there was one guy out there who was going to do exactly what needed to be done and not bow to pressure, which he obviously had to expect would be immense, it was going to be Edmund Andros. Accepting the position, Andros arrived in Massachusetts on December 20th, 1686, and took over control of the Dominion of New England. What Andros inherited in the Dominion was an absolute mess in just about every aspect you could imagine. Beyond the things that we have spent the last several weeks talking about, such as the rampant non-compliance with the Navigation Acts, the colony was filled with religious and social strife as well. For the Puritans of Massachusetts, their entire identity had been so tightly interwoven with their charter that the revocation of the charter completely upturned their lives. Every single aspect of the colonial government was also tied into Puritan hegemony that was not going to be allowed under the new regime. Even the law code in Massachusetts was written from a biblical perspective, something that we talked about back in episode 1.27. Finally, as though to add icing to the cake, the Dominion was flat broke. The events of King Philip's War had meant that the colony had racked up a huge amount of debt at the same time that they saw a drop in production during the war itself, not a great formula for success. This is added to the fact that New England, even in the best of times, was lacking any kind of a cash crop like tobacco in the South, which would have been able to quickly raise large amounts of capital. Andros was therefore left with a colony that was going to need complete reform from the top down. Beginning with the government, what Andros had inherited was largely the same government that Dudley had been dealing with before him, and what was laid out by James II himself. For Andros, the issue of governmental structure would have been just about the easiest adjustment. The government that Andros was taking over was modeled on the same charter that existed in New York. For Andros as the former governor of New York, that made it a pretty easy transition. The biggest change in terms of the daily governance of the colony since the revocation of the charter was the disbanding of the general court. Representative government had become a hallmark of New England politics from the moment the colony was founded. It is worth noting here that for Andros, he wasn't really all that opposed to a representative system. Remember that during his time in New York, he believed that a representative assembly would have been a useful device towards governing the colony. Andros had recognized that, from a more pragmatic standpoint, an assembly was a useful tool in order to handle local administration. Andros knew that he could pass laws all day long, 
However, enforcement of those same laws was a far more difficult feat. An assembly, on the other hand, meant that the colonists were more invested in the colonial structure and were more likely to follow the laws that they themselves had passed. Andrus was also an astute politician who likely understood that, despite the fact he didn't personally have a problem with assemblies, his boss, King James II, did. Though James had reluctantly acquiesced and agreed to let New York have an assembly, he sneakily got out of it by never delivering the new charter that would have allowed for the assembly once he became King James II. Once James had become the king, he had absolutely no intention of following through with that plan. James II was fighting hard to reintroduce a strong royal prerogative in the colonies and at home. An assembly was anathema to that end goal. This is to say nothing of how the crown perceived the excesses of the former General Court of Massachusetts. For the colonists, this drew into question what their rights as Englishmen actually were. An assembly was not some novel concept to them. This was a guaranteed right under the Magna Carta. This brings us to the point that the colonists didn't view themselves as living out in the wilderness. Rather, they view themselves as being just another part of England proper. And certainly, they have a point here. These were not a conquered people. They willingly and voluntarily made their way across the Atlantic to settle in New England. There was, in their minds, never a question of if they had somehow relinquished their rights as Englishmen. They viewed themselves as being just as much Englishmen as somebody living back on the home island. James II and his government, however, made clear that the rights of Englishmen are not the same for those at home versus those who cross the Atlantic, and that yes, they can be required to do things that would be a clear violation of those rights back in England itself. As I've alluded to before, this is not a question that is going to go away anytime soon. This is a question that is going to remain central to our discussion moving forward and is one that is going to be at the very heart of the events taking place during the 1760s and 70s. In his daily work, Edmund Andrus was aided by a council of 14 that was to assist him in his administration. However, it is important that we establish that the council was not the same thing as what the general court was. Well, the council, theoretically, was there to help legislate. Andros could, and indeed would, often act unilaterally. Andros would consult the council, however, ultimately power rested nearly exclusively in him. This is a point that we are going to revisit both later today and in the episodes moving forward. The council that Andros had was, effectively, the same one that Dudley had before him, though Dudley himself was now on the council. Made up of the moderates, it was a mostly merchant class that was more than happy, for the moment at least, to be rid of the often inflexible Puritan faction. The first and most pressing problem that Andros faced was the fact that the colony was flat broke. King Philip's War had devastated the economy and the colony had yet to recover. Dudley, too, had been forced to deal with the problem of finances, and this was a major contributing factor in his conflict with Gould. However, with his short tenure in office, it meant that seeking a solution was something that was going to fall primarily on the shoulders of Andros. In the new system, taxes presented an especially odorous problem for the colonists. The first problem came from the fact that they were now being subjected to taxes for which they had no representation. 
This is something that they viewed as not a mere inconvenience, but as a direct attack on their rights as Englishmen, as provided under the Magna Carta. As time progressed, this resistance to the levy taxes is going to make collecting those taxes increasingly difficult. The second problem for Andros came from the fact that even amongst his council, taxes were a very touchy subject. This isn't terribly surprising either, as the moderates were largely made up of that merchant class, those who were likely to feel the brunt of any new taxes passed. Andros initially planned not to make waves by doing something dramatic, you know, like raising taxes. Rather, the plan was to focus on increased enforcement of existing tax laws and put in a stop to non-payments. Massachusetts had long been plagued by problems with tax collection, which had helped run the coffers dry. It almost immediately, however, becomes apparent to Andros that enforcing the existing tax codes alone was not going to raise sufficient revenue for the colony. Taxes were going to have to be increased. The debate in the council, therefore, was not about whether or not new taxes were going to be passed. Rather, it turned to who was going to have to bear the burden of these new taxes. For the merchant class, those who made up the council, they favored increasing taxes on the landowning class rather than a tax on trade. Knowing that he had to raise revenue significantly, Andros decided on a third option altogether. Andros put forward a bill that added a tax on all estates, a new poll tax, as well as a tax on imported goods. Predictably, the land-owning class, largely made up of members of the old faction, objected to the new taxes. However, considering that the new taxes also affected trade, his own council of moderates also objected to the new taxes. This experience would also very loudly introduce New England to the new world that they lived in. The council hotly debated the new proposals and voiced their objections to the taxes being placed on trade. However, if the moderates themselves had become convinced of the fact that their position on the council was the functional equivalent to the old general court, they were about to be sorely disappointed. After an all-day debate on March 2nd, 1687, the council adjourned without bringing the new bill to a vote. The next morning when they returned, likely expecting to resume the debates, they found that Andrus had gone ahead and signed the bill into law anyway. There would be no more discussion. There would be no vote. For the council members, it had just been made abundantly clear that they were not a new representative assembly. Rather, they were just there to make non-binding suggestions to Edmund Andros, who was free to legislate as he deemed fit. Resentment to the new taxes, both in substance and in the form by which they were passed, did lead to the first attempts to resist the new colonial government. The center of resistance came out of Essex County. The hope for those in Essex was that by resisting the taxes, not because of an inability to pay or objection to the amount, but rather on the basis that they were arbitrary and passed without consent, it would force Andros to acquiesce and call for an assembly. The form of resistance was a straightforward refusal by the towns to pay the tax. In the town of Ipswich, when ordered to appoint a tax commissioner, the townspeople flat refused the order. Without the mechanism by which to collect the taxes, it was hoped that it would effectively come to nothing. According to those protesting and resisting the new taxes, they could not be expected to pay the taxes because they were illegally passed without representation of the taxed. 
Much to the dismay of those resisting the taxes, Andros was about to make clear that it was the beginning of a new age in Massachusetts. Moving quickly, Andros arrested over 30 of the protesters. They were thrown in jail where they were left to await trial. With things really not going as planned, several of those resisting suddenly realized that Andros was not messing around and said that if they were released, they thought they would probably be able to find their wallets for that payment. For those wanting to stick with the plans and entrench further, they were treated to a trial that would introduce another hated part of the new order in the Dominion. Rather than being tried by a jury of their peers, they were instead tried by members of Andros's council. Unsurprisingly, the court was quick to hand down convictions and the men paid stiff fines and suffered through losses of public office for their disobedience. Those who lost a trial would object that the trial had been illegal as they had been denied a jury. However, those complaints fell on deaf ears. Object as they might, it was being made abundantly clear that their rights as Englishmen failed to extend as they always believed they had outside of the home islands. Andros came into the colony ready to enforce a new reality, and he was going to do that regardless of complaints. While still reeling from the tax debacle, Andros then turned his attention to the land grants that had been previously made. The Crown had called into question the ownership of the land in New England and the right of the Bay Colony under their charter to make land grants. Andros, with directions from the Crown, pushed forward with the unenviable task of having to tell the colonists that they would have to apply for new land grants to remain living on the land that they already were on. The colonists in the Bay Colony were shocked when they learned that the revocation of the company's charter came with the revocation of all the land grants made under that charter. For the colonists, this was not some abstract political argument over concepts such as representation, but rather it was an attack on their own security in their homes and their very livelihoods. Imagine for a moment that you had purchased a home that you had been living in for decades. The home is paid for and you are the unquestioned owner. Suddenly, however, political changes come along and you are informed that you no longer have a rightful claim to your home, though you can feel free to apply to the government for a new grant. This is roughly the situation that the Bay Company colonists suddenly found themselves in. Andres required that all affected landowners now needed to apply for a royal patent. From the position of the Dominion, this made a lot of sense. First, by forcing the colonists to petition directly to the crown for their land, it further broke the entrenched position of the former government. Now, your land is not directly connected to the now-defunct Puritan government, but rather comes directly from the king himself. More pragmatically, the new land grants would help raise fees through clarifying the often confusing and poorly made land grants that were formed under the previous charter. Andros viewed the clarification of the process as a means by which he could check the growing problem of land speculation by clarifying tracts. Andros, likewise wanting to break up the holdings of those who were indeed simply speculating, stood in opposition to large landholders getting to retain their often vast estates. This again puts him directly at odds with some of the members of his own council. Time and time again, Andros stood in direct opposition to those who were trying to get a new patent for their large claims. Well, this might sound like a victory for the small farmer who only owned a small personal lot, it was in fact a blow to the anonymity that Massachusetts had previously enjoyed. 
Breaking up those large holdings was a method whereby the former elite in Boston saw more of their wealth and power quickly destroyed. This was most acutely felt in Maine, where many of the most prominent and wealthy colonists bought huge parcels of land. Not to mention that the process of applying for a royal patent itself was not free. For the colonists, they found themselves having to request, and more importantly pay for, permission to remain on land that had likely been in their family for decades. To say that this was unpopular is an understatement. Once again, here we are going to see a rift between Andros and his own council. Unsurprisingly, his council was very seriously affected by this decision and had their own holdings pulled into question. For them, it was another clear reminder that they were not an assembly and that their opinions were mere suggestions rather than serving any functioning role in the government. Andros, when talking with a Puritan minister, asked his opinion. The minister told him that the land in New England belonged not to the king, but rather to his subjects, who had lived and cultivated the land since the 1630s. In response to the minister's defiance of the new laws, Andros informed him that, either you are subjects or rebels. Whether or not this story is apocryphal, few things better illustrate the worldview of Andros during his time in the Dominion. Anything short of complete, unquestioned obedience was rebellious. It is further important to note here that these decisions were deeply unpopular, not only in Massachusetts, but throughout the other colonies that made up the Dominion of New England. In Plymouth, for instance, they had a long history of trying to remain separated as best as possible. They were always pretty clear that they wanted nothing to do with Massachusetts, nor the elite in Boston. Suddenly, however, they were going to be required to apply, through Boston, in order to maintain the claims that they had held for the past 60 years. Andros himself faced a rather difficult situation when it came to the situation of the land. Despite the beliefs and feelings that he is shaping up to be the villain of our story here, Andros himself personally understood the complaints and frustrations of the colonists. The problem for Andros is that he was not one to rock the boat or question the wisdom of such an act when the order came from above. In this case, the orders were coming directly from James II, and Andros was not going to be the one to question the problem. Well, certainly he had some power and discretion over the process. Andros found that the often confusing records and overlapping claims of the prior land grants required that everybody, regardless of tenure on the land, needed to apply for a new patent. If Andros was working with a partial motivation of trying to simplify the system of individual holdings and clear up those messy overlapping parcels, what the colonists were left with was nothing short of a disaster. In addition to the expensive filing fees that many struggled with, and some could not afford at all, the process was filled with complicating loopholes. For example, Land that was purchased directly from the Indians, a common practice, did not come with clear documentation that the colonists could now rely upon. These handshake deals often left colonists without any kind of legal claim at all. Resistance from the colonists largely came by ignoring the new laws and continuing forward. By 1688, we know that there had been numerous complaints directly to the king about Andros's position on the land. However, the colonists were again rebuffed because recall, that the orders regarding the land came personally from James II, so none of this surprised nor concerned him. 
Ultimately, despite the battle, only around 200 people would ever actually end up moving forward and filing their paperwork, acknowledging the much-hated law. Bureaucratic complications further meant that only about 20 of those 200 applications were approved before the Andros reign came to a close. The land policies of Edmund Andros were hated to be sure, but served a critical function for the future of the Dominion of New England. Namely, the policy helped make allies of longtime rivals. Put another way, it created an internal atmosphere of us versus them. The colonists were all affected by the land battles, regardless of political belief, religion, or anything else. If you were a New England colonist, you were directly affected from the land debates. Even those otherwise seemingly loyal members of Andros' own council suddenly found themselves directly opposed to the very person that they were supposedly loyal to. In that battle of us versus them, it was beginning to shape up that the battle was going to be between the New England colonists on one side and an increasingly isolated Edmund Andros on the other. This now forming rift between Andros and the colonists in New England is going to go a long way towards explaining both the future for Edmund Andros and for the future of the Dominion of New England as a whole. In addition to land and tax reform, one of the main goals of the Crown, and thus Edmund Andros, was strengthening the Navigation Acts. We discussed the Navigation Acts previously a few times now, and it can be categorically stated that just about everybody hated them. This hate is not limited to Massachusetts either. Recall that down in Virginia, the effect from the Navigation Acts helped set the chess pieces for Bacon's Rebellion. Well, Virginia would begrudgingly comply with the Navigation Acts, though they too were not innocent of occasionally skirting the law, Massachusetts pretty much said, nope, we aren't going to be doing that when it came to following the Navigation Acts. Remember Captain Winborn coming directly to the colony and observing that the Navigation Acts were just ignored because it hadn't really benefited Massachusetts? The colonists had relented some since that visit by Winborn, having given into royal demands by codifying the law themselves, However, that was really more tantamount to lip service than anything else. Edmund Andros, however, was not the kind of guy to just beat around the bush or allow for half measures. Enforcement of the Navigation Acts was day one kind of work. The Navigation Acts had always been particularly difficult on Massachusetts. As the colony lacked a stable crop which their economy depended on, a much smaller scale of trade would emerge. Well, staple crops, like tobacco, were hit with custom duties that nobody in Virginia liked, production was on a much larger scale, therefore the cost felt more offset by the potential profit. In New England, most trade was conducted at a much smaller individual level, thus making the impact of the Navigation Acts that much more acutely felt. The first move by Andros was to restrict the number of ports into the colony. All ports, other than Boston, Salem, Piscataqua, Newport and New Bristol were closed. Having fewer ports made enforcement easier to manage and meant that a smaller number of people could run the complicated custom systems. Any violation of the acts were left in the hands of an admiralty court that was established to deal with the problem. The head of the court was Robert Mason from New Hampshire. We are going to talk more about Mason next time. However, as you'll see, he is no friend to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Andros also took offense to the fact that the colony would routinely deal with pirates, 
something that Edmund Andros simply was not going to tolerate. Well, yeah, this makes sense. Let's not do business with pirates, guys. Restricting these relationships is going to have a detrimental effect on the local economy. Pirates had long found that Massachusetts was a great place to land, retrofit their ships, get supplies, and then be on their way to do some swashbuckling and other pirate things. The great thing about pirates is that they always pay in hard currency. Sure, there were thieves, but so long as they paid in gold and didn't ask for credit, which nobody was going to give a pirate credit in the first place because, you know, they're pirates, the colonists were happy to help out. Think of this as being something of a side hustle for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. With Andros doing away with this segment of the economy, it meant that at a time where taxes were on the rise, an already depleted economy just lost an important source of income. Hard currency was very hard to come by in 1680s Massachusetts, and telling pirates that their money was no longer good here did nothing but exacerbate an already bad situation. The Navigation Acts are yet another example where there was near universal hate for the Acts, and again, it would leave Andros sitting on an island all alone, though based on past history, one would sure assume that the colonists knew that if Andros did nothing else, he was going to enforce the Navigation Acts. Massachusetts has always been something of an authoritarian colony in reality, with a government that was so closely tied to the Puritan church that the church wielded such total power over the colony, you can see what a disaster the dissolution of the charter really was. As we have seen today, while there was a lot of people anxious to see the Puritan stranglehold broken, even a lot of Andrus's early supporters were quickly becoming disillusioned with him. This is a trend that is not going to reverse as time goes on. Next time we are going to continue working through the Dominion of New England and the effects that Andros had over the colony. Specifically, we are going to be looking at the justice system before spending the rest of our time looking at the all-important religious reforms that came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony following the revocation of their charter. Until then, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks, that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here in two weeks' time to continue our investigation of the Dominion of New England. <laughs>